How many of you have read the book Pilgrim's Progress? A couple of you. Okay. Some of you are snickering at me because you hear the word pilgrim, I'm sure. But let me, let me explain kind of what this book is. This is a Christian allegory book written by a man named John Bunyan. Now, John Bunyan uh, was an English preacher in the 1660s. Um, he was um, a man who came to faith and became a minister uh, in the English church. And he was actually imprisoned uh, during this time. There was a time in English history where uh, Reformation came and the um, churches... Uh, saw ex- extreme persecution. Many pastors um, in this time were, were imprisoned for preaching. In fact, there were uh, constraints so strict, that I don't even know how this is possible, but some historians say that preachers couldn't preach within miles of their congregation. Now, you might as well just say don't preach, right? That's basically what the government was doing at this time. So pastors in England who were trying to be faithful and true to the word were being locked up. Uh, You see that actually happening today in countries like Canada and Australia. But pastors are being locked up, and John Bunyan was one of these pastors. And he was in prison. And while he was in prison, he wrote the book Pilgrim's Progress. Now, what Pilgrim's Progress is, it's an allegory Christian book of the Christian life. It's a book that, uh, that really characterizes and shows the Christian walk, the struggles the Christian goes through to stay faithful. It's a, a great book, and it's basically encompasses a man named Christian. He's got a burden on his back and a book in his hand. And the book opens with him saying, what must I do to be saved? Well, he meets a man named Evangelist. And Evangelist tells him, if you want to be saved, you need to look yonder way at the wicked gate, the wicked gate, narrow gate, not wicked gate, wicked gate, narrow gate, the narrow gate. And he says, do you see that cross? And Christian says, yes, I see it. He says, Go for that cross, find that path, that's how you'll be saved. And so Christian goes on his journey, he faces many, many obstacles, he faces many people who step in his way, such as a man named Atheist, who we can all kind of define what's happening there, a man named Deceived, who tries and, uh, and, tries and give Christian false teachings that he earns his salvation through his own righteousness. And you even see Christian fight off demons who try to hurt him and harm him in his walk, but he uses a a sword which represents God's word and he fights off demons. It's a wonderful book. I I encourage everybody to try and read it. I listen to the audio book. I mean, that that counts, right? That's that's good, right? Okay. Well, I listened to the audio book and I was blown away by how it, it just speaks to the walk of the Christian life. And that book really opened up to me reading through our psalm that we are in today. You know, the book of Psalms are just a, a very powerful declaration of who God is. You find rich theological statements in the book of Psalms. You know, a lot of people see them as the coffee cup verses, right? The ones that we, we put in our coffee cups, the Psalm 23s. But this, these Psalms really speak to who God is, his character, what he's done. You see grief in these Psalms. You see cries out for repentance because of sin. You see, praising God for who he is, from creator, from the beginnings to the ends. You see so much in these psalms. Just an amazing, amazing book. We're actually going to be in Psalm 1 today, so if you want to go ahead and turn there. This is the very first psalm of the book, obviously, but however, it was not the first psalm written. Uh, Many scholars think Psalm 90 was actually the first psalm, but this psalm is placed here for a specific purpose, and I think when we read it, you'll, you'll kind of understand why. 
So, hey, let's all read this psalm together, but I will ask, don't get mad at me, let's all stand and read this together. So if you could just stand with me. Let's give God his glory and his word, his revelation that was given to us for us to know him. His knowledge has been given to every one of us. So let's just give honor to him and read this psalm, standing in glory to him. Psalm 1, we're going to go through verses 1 through 6 today, the whole psalm. Verse 1, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked, or stand in the pathway of sinners, or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in seasons, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Father, I thank you for giving us divine revelation. God, you've poured out what you want us to know in this book. This is not just a book of rules. This is not just a book of how-tos or what-to-dos. This is your word, your truth that you've had from eternity. We are so blessed to have it. Lord, I pray that you help us understand what the writer wants us to know from this psalm. I pray that you live out your, your truth just speaks to our hearts this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place and it would move us all to a higher level of worship with you. And God, I pray that we are edified by this, that we grow in this, in your name I pray, you may be seated. Well, you can see kind of why this psalm uh, is placed in the beginning, and I forgot to mention to you all, I'm reading out of the CSB translation. If you, if you have your electronic device, you can flip to that, or if you have a different translation, you'll kind of see similarities, but you see kind of why this psalm is the first one. It's really kind of the entryway to basically what the Christian life is, how we ought to walk, what our uh, joy, where our joy is as Christians and where, uh, what our characteristics will be if God is at the center of your life. And you see the opposite of that as well. You see the contrast, what, they, what the Bible calls the wicked, those who have not surrendered to God, those who do not have Christ in the center. And you see that, and it's split perfectly right down the middle to contrast these two. And then verse six closes with, a, with an amazing statement. But as soon as I read this, you know, my mind just immediately goes to Noah, the story of Noah. We all are familiar with that story. If you want to flip over to Genesis 6 with me, you can. Genesis 6, we see the story of Noah. But that story of Noah, we all know the story. Noah and the flood. He was commanded by God to build an ark, survive the judgments that would come by the flood. Uh, but what we see, and I'm going to go ahead and read verses 5 through 7, we kind of see where the state of humanity was during this time. Verse 5, when the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth, that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil, the evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who, who I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds in the sky. I regret that I made them. But, verse 8, Noah found favor from the Lord. Now let me just say, you hear right there in verses 5 through 7 the absolute wickedness 
that mankind has come under, the, the treachery and the, the just turning away from God in this moment. But I want to say just real quick as a side note, I don't want anyone to read this passage and come away with these verses with an open theism state of mind. What open theism suggests is that God does not know the future. What open theism says that he is really not in control of what the future says. Really, man does what man does, and God kind of picks up the pieces. Now, open theists would probably push back at me for that statement. They'd probably say I misrepresented him. But the fact is, open theism really does set God as not God and man as God. And here's the, here's the problem where we kind of run into these. When it says the Lord regretted that he had made man. We can go ahead and let Scripture interpret Scripture like this, Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. You don't have to turn there, just listen to this. Remember what, this is God speaking, remember what happened long ago, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there was no one like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago, what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. I call on a bird of prey from the east and man for my purpose far from a far from a country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. I have planned it. I will also do it. Proverbs 16, chapter 16, verse 20, 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, a lot, biblically, is like dice. Just go ahead and think dice. So the dice is cast into the lap, cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. The dice does not roll where it rolls without the Lord. And James, you see that he speaks of a man who gets on a boat and goes for a season to make a living. But he only makes that living if it's God's will for him. You see these, and of course I paraphrase that text, but you see these proof texts show that God is sovereign over everything. There is nothing outside of him. There's nothing outside of his control, his plan, and his purpose. Open theism does not describe the God of the Bible. So when we see a verse like this that says God regretted making man, or it seems as though that he made a mistake, this is a form of a literary writing. Moses wrote this for you to understand the emotion of God and how wicked he is for sin, how much he hates sin. So he wants you to understand that. Anytime we see historical texts like this, it writes in that literary form. It's Moses telling a story. It's not describing the necessarily character of God. Don't buy an open theism. God is sovereign over all. Amen? So we see here, continuing on, verse 8, Noah found that, uh, excuse me, verse 9. These are the family records of Noah. Now here is where we find how Noah found his favor. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. My wife got me an awesome birthday present. She took me to um, the uh, Creation Museum in the Ark Encounter um, in Kentucky, basically replicas of Noah's Ark. And we got to go in there, and it, it talked about this story that we just read. And you could see the picture of, during, of these people worshiping gods and worshiping idols, and you see Noah, and somebody's holding up a statue to him, and you see Noah covering his face because he doesn't want to submit to that. He doesn't want to worship that. He wants to worship the one true God that he had faith in and that he believed in. And in this, in this time of history, he was the only one, if you can imagine that. He was the only one that walked with God during this time. Of course, you know the story. God commanded him to build an ark. He, his family, and the creatures he commanded were on that ark, and they were protected by the divine judgment 
of the flood. They were covered by the ark. You and I are covered by an ark. You and I are covered by the blood of Jesus. God has judgment coming to the earth one day for the wickedness and the sin of the world, but you and I have been given a covering. You and I have been given a safe haven, and it's repentance and faith in his son who paid the price on the cross, Jesus Christ. That's where our covering is. That's where you and I in our new covenant with God find safety from from the judgment to come. But the story of Noah and how he was the only righteous man, the one who walked with God, you see it play out here in Psalm 1. You kind of see the parallel here. So what we're going to do is we're going to take apart four things from this opening passage, and then we're going to look at a couple more things from the bottom half of the passage and kind of contrast these two ways of life that the psalmist lays out for us. So verse 1, Psalm 1, verse 1. How happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway of sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Now, most translations, instead of the word happy, they use blessed. Okay? And obviously that's a very strong, you kind of weigh the translations, you see which word's probably a little stronger. But I actually really like what the CSB did here with the word happy. Because I believe that word happy really runs in line or really falls in with the rest of this text and the way the psalmist describes it. But he says here, happy is the one who does not walk in the path, uh, stand in the path of sinners, who doesn't sit in the company of mockers. And during this time, a lot of these Old Testament texts you see, and really all throughout history, you see that during this time, there were false gods being worshipped. There were pagan gods. There were wicked practices. In fact, you see the book of Judges, you see people sacrificing their own children because they thought that was what they should do. Because the book of Judges closes with what? They did what was right in their own eyes. And so the psalmist is separating, or excuse me, the one the psalmist is writing about is separating from this this worldly life. He's separating from the sinful, wicked acts of the world. And this is why he's happy. This is where he finds his joy because he doesn't find his joy in the world and the ways of the world, but he separates and finds his joy in God. This is why God tells us don't love the world, but love him. Look at 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John kind of expands on this idea here. He says, 15, do not love the world and things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is with its lust uh, the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does the will of God remains forever. And what I find interesting there is John is not just speaking to lustful desires. He's not just speaking to sexually driven desires. Look at it. He says in one's possessions. So he kind of covers everything here. He says, "Don't let the lusts of the world, your one's possessions become your heart." Don't let your heart devote to those things. Devote to God first. Now, I truly believe that John's not telling you to not enjoy things in the world. In other scriptures, you find that God has given us things to enjoy, friendships, okay? Some of you love your job. Guess what? That's a blessing from God. Some of you have achieved some really cool accomplishments. You've graduated high school. Some of you have graduated college, and you're about to start a new career, 
Um, your people are very proud of you for that. Some of you are having a new baby, new marriage. These are things in the world that God has given as a blessing. But when those things become God, when those things become the idol, that's when we find ourselves on the path away from him. And the path away from him leads to destruction. Today's culture has that order out of whack, don't they? The world tells us it's all about what we want. We make ourselves happy for what we want, and there's no filter to guide what's right and wrong. We, we throw that biblical filter out. We want what we want. Money is glorified in this world. The rich are seen as, as powerful. The rich are seen as successful. The rich is what, what we're told to go after. Go after that big those, those big salaries, go after that big retirement, not saying it's wrong to have retirement, but again, when that becomes God, we get ourselves in trouble. But what about this power, your accomplishments, anything like that, when that becomes the center, we have a problem. I love what uh, James, uh, so there's a, a conference that you can find on YouTube called Elephant Room, Elephant Room One. It's kind of when a group of pastors that came together and they discussed issues like the elephant in the room. James McDonald, a former pastor, brought up a great point, and he was speaking to David Platt. David Platt, if you don't know, wrote a book called Radical, talking about a radical dispensation of your resources and turning over to Christ, not just resources, but life as well. And I think it's a great book. Um, I think it's one that every Christian should at least read, but James is pushing back on the idea of just completely making yourself absolutely broken. He says this, it, look, it's not that you, it's not when th you, things that you have, it's when things have you. And I think that's a great way to put it. It's not what you have, it's when things have you. Another good text to supplement that idea and separating from the world. Mark chapter 10, we see one of the, the most, probably the most famous stories that the most referenced, one of the most referenced stories Jesus taught. Mark 10, 17 through 22, the rich young ruler. So a man approaches Jesus and he says this, as he was sitting on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him, and he asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds, why do you call me good? Jesus asked, no one does good except God alone. You know the commandment, do you, do you not murder? Do you not commit adultery? Do not steal? Do not bear false witness? Do not defraud? Honor your father and mother? And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these commandments from my youth. But looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. In verse 22, we kind of get the heart of the rich young ruler, right? He was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. So this man passed the morality test. He passed the commandment test. But our sovereign Lord Jesus Christ knew where his heart was, and he said, well, if you want to follow me, go sell your possessions. Go let that go and then follow me. And my translation says he was dismayed. NASB says he was grieving. I really like that, grieving. He was grieving because his stuff became his heart, because that was his God. That was his idol. Any of you ever watch Shark Tank? I love that show. Love that show. Uh, it's a very, very fun show. I encourage you to watch it. It's about entrepreneurs that pitch um, their business ideas to sharks or investors. You probably know some of them. Mark Cuban, famous um, NBA uh, basketball owner and, and others. 
But I always watch that show, and it talks about, and I'm not saying don't try to be successful, but what I'm saying is the promotion is wealth, fame, fortune, success, and that's great. It's great to get that, but I always ask myself, I wonder what would happen if you snatched those sharks' money away. Nothing against the sharks personally, just a case study. If you pulled that money away, what would happen to them? Where were their, what, would, what would be of them? Would they maybe walk with a little bit of stress in life but know that they have security in God or know that they have security in something else, that their money wasn't everything? I wonder that when I watch that show and I wonder that about today. What if something got snatched from us? What if things get pulled from us? Our successes, our achievements, our athletic achievements, our careers, or our finances. I think it's a true test to know where our heart is. This is why John tells us not to love the world because guess what? Money can be spent, it can be taken, it can be stolen, you can lose it in a bad investment, it can be gone, and then where do you stand from there? Success, you can fail, you can experience failure, and success is pulled. Athletic achievements, look, we can do great in athletics, we can get hurt and lose some of those things, or we can fall short in an area, but when it goes away, where does our foundation lie? And praise God, you Christian, praise God that your identity does not lie in things of the world because things of the world can fail. But praise God that your identity is in Christ who is eternal from the beginning with God, came to the earth, sacrificed on the cross for your sins. And there's eternal joy in that, to know that his inheritance has been placed on you because of repentance and faith that an inheritance in heaven is there for you, and he's there for you by the Spirit in this life. That is something that will not perish. That is what the psalmist is saying. Why am I happy? Because I've separated from the world, and I'm clinging to Christ, clinging to God. This is what we need to understand Separation from the world will bring joy. Not leaving the world, not quitting your sports or quitting your job for Jesus. No, it's, you're, not, you're in the world, but don't be of the world. Let Christ be the center. And this is where the psalmist takes his joy in the opening verse. His joy is the separation from the wicked. He's not sitting in the, in the company of, of scoffers and mockers. And then we see in verse two where his delight comes from. So he's separated from the world. Now he finds his delight where does he find it? Verse two, instead he, defined, he finds his delight in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. Now, we typically don't like instruction, right? I mean, when our bosses tell us, hey, I need you to go move that to here or I need you to do this or that, uh, right? Students, I know you guys don't do that when your parents say that, right? Uh, it's like instruction. Where do you have, what do you have to do? Where do I have to go? Where do I have to be today? But this isn't the idea that the psalmist gives us. No, he tells us delight. He takes delight in the Lord's instruction. Why is that? Because the sovereign Lord, creator of all, the Alpha and Omega, has given us his knowledge to know him. John chapter 8 
Verse 12, you don't have to turn there, but one of the great I am statements Jesus gives us. He, he tells the Pharisees that I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me shall not walk in darkness, but will have the eternal, uh, will have life. So Jesus is coming into the darkness of the world. A lot of scholars believe that that not only speaks of just his goodness, but it speaks of his revelation, it speaks to his commands, it speaks to his teachings, it speaks to the Lord's instruction. Because nothing's outside of him. All goodness and all right standing in the world, all morality comes from God because it's his knowledge. It's his goodness. He is the good one. He is the standard. And so Jesus comes to the earth and delivers a further commandment and a new covenant of that. Look at John 1. Listen to John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He, being Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, not even one thing came into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. Psalm 16, verse 2, essentially tells us that we can't do anything good apart from God. So why is the psalmist delighting in the Lord's instruction? Because it's his goodness. We know what is good because of God. We have a standard for morality because of God. If God has not given us his objective standard from the beginning of what is right and wrong, we have no standard for morality. Morality is completely subjective if we don't have God. I could come right now and kick you out of your chair. But hey, if there's no God, guess what? Morality is subjective. I can do what feels right to me. I'm offended that you're sitting there, so I'm going to kick you out of your chair. But God knows we love our neighbor. God has given us what's best for our life. There is a standard of morality, and it's found in God. And the psalmist says, I delight in that instruction. I delight because I know what good is, and I can walk in God's path. I can walk with him. And another point to that. Is walking with God in obedience is walking in communion and connection with him. I have some of the best influences in my life have been coaches. Okay, one of them's here today. I've had many throughout my life that have just really inspired me and really helped me, not just in sports, but in life. And when they gave me instruction, some of it harsh, some of it praise, but when they gave me instruction and I walked in their instruction and we achieved a goal together, there was nothing better than that relationship. I mean, it was just a tight-knit relationship because you've given me your knowledge, I carried out that knowledge, we were successful, and it just builds from that. Anyone who's coached understands that connection. That's a real connection. Same thing with a teacher and a student. Most of you have great teachers that you love. It's because you fed on their instruction, and their instruction was a delight to you, not a burden to you. And it's the same thing with God. Christ has given us the command, love our neighbor, love our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. And when we walk in that light, when we walk how we ought to, we are walking in communion with him. And we can take delight in the Bible. The Bible doesn't become a burden. Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. When we walk in that light, it becomes a delight for you and I because we walk in what's best for our lives. When I found out that this really wasn't just a rule book, that it was God's word from eternity, 
That's when I fell in love, really fell in love with Scripture because there's delight in these words. These aren't just burdensome tasks. They're delight in these words. And the psalmist goes from the separation from the wicked to the delight of God's word in our lives, and he says this, verse three, the man who he spoke of is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. So the result of separating from sin, separating from the world, and delighting in God's instruction is like a picture of this, of a tree that's just constantly being flowed with a stream of water that's giving fruit from the tree, that's powering it to bear this fruit. Just what a beautiful picture of that, just constant nourishment. I think John 15, verses one through six, Jesus gives us an idea uh, or a parallel of what this picture is. John 15, verses one through six, he's talking with his disciples, and again, he gives one of the great I am statements, but one that's just so powerful. It says this, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that, that produces fruit that, he will, that will produce more fruit. He says, you already are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produces much fruit because you can do nothing without me. If anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch he withers, they gather, they throw him into the fire, and they are burned. So Jesus paints this picture of the gardener trimming, clipping, pruning away branches that don't produce fruit, making, making room for more branches that do produce fruit. And he tells them that they've already been cleaned. So they've been converted, right? These disciples have been converted to him. And then he tells them the powerful statement, he says, I am the vine. Christ is the vine that produces the fruit. He tells them that if they, he tells them that he would produce fruit if they remained in him. And what did these disciples go and do? They remained in Christ. And when Christ died, rose, and ascended into heaven, they carried out the great commission. They spoke the gospel. They preached the gospel in the face of, of extreme persecution and this Amazing in the book of Acts how that history carries out and the church is brought today to what it is today because of what the apostles did because they were abided in Christ and that fruit bared. Acts chapter two, I love that story. Peter stands, stands up and, and preaches the gospel and over 3,000 people come to Christ because he remained, they were abiding in the power of Christ to do so. Christ is the vine. The vine that gives you strength to walk in the life as a Christian, to walk this righteous path. Galatians 5.22, we see what this vine, the fruit that this vine produces. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, self-control. These things help life. These things preserve life. These things are good for life. And you see the contrast of that, right? Above that, verse 19, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior. Verse 20, idolatry, witchcraft, hostileness, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, 
envy and drunkenness. These things are destructive to life. So what the vine is doing, what Christ does through the Holy Spirit, the third part of the Trinity is constantly pushing us to bear this fruit, to separate from wickedness and continue to walk in the path of Jesus. We call this sanctification. This is the church teaching of sanctification where it's you will not live a perfect life. First John tells us that he who says he's without sin is a liar, but those who enjoy the Spirit, who walk by the fruit of the Spirit, will continue to grow and walk and climb that mountain to be like Christ and bear fruit. That's why Christ tells you you're the salt of the earth because we are preserving the earth through the fruit of the Spirit. We are seeking love righteousness, justice. We are seeking things that preserve the earth and preserve life. But we don't do that without the vine. You don't do that without remaining in the vine that gives you that strength. Christ is that strength. He is that vine. And look at the picture. The water is constantly flowing to the tree. It's constantly bearing that fruit They're not building up a dam blocking that water. It's a constant flow of the Holy Spirit walking through a believer. A beautiful picture. Beautiful picture painted there. At the end of that verse, Scripture says, whatever he does, he prospers. Now, the psalmist here is not saying that a Christian has a Midas touch or that they're promised health and wealth. Or prom- nobody's promised to be rich for becoming a Christian. Now, some people are blessed affluently from God, and that's wonderful, but that's not a guaranteed promise. There's no guaranteed promise of that. We find that preached in what's known as the prosperity gospel, right? We've, we've all heard of that term. We've all seen that term. If you believe in Jesus, you'll have rims on your rims, that style of theology. Look, if you're listening to a guy that has dollar in his name, Creflo Dollar, if you've heard of that, probably not a guy that's seeking the fruit of the Spirit. No offense to anybody who is listening to a guy like that. If you are, come talk to me. I'll tell you why you probably shouldn't. But the psalmist is telling us that that, that the man who is separated from the world, who takes delight in the Lord's instruction, who is living on the supply of this water and this tree is bearing fruit, what does he say? He prospers in everything he does. And what he's saying there is that if, if we understand who God is working through our lives in Romans, like Romans 8, 28, God's working all things for the good for those who love him. And just above that, what does it say? That the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, praying prayers and we don't know what to pray for. The psalmist is trying to get you to understand that you prosper within life. You prosper by surviving this Christian walk, by staying with him. As he, John, as he tells us in John 10, my sheep will hear my voice. They will not be carried away by a stranger. They won't be carried away by the thief. They'll stay with the shepherd. And so what we see here is a prosperous life that is staying with God and enduring faithfully and keeping the fruit of the Spirit and trusting that Spirit to intercede for us and trusting that God is working in everything. Romans 8, 28, again, God is working through all things. He has a plan in all things, good, bad, success, failure. He is working all things for the good of those who love him, who suffer, who mourn, But God is there for the long haul. God is there to preserve the saints, the Christians who have committed to him and have 
turn from sin and trust him. So look at the bridge, what we have so far, okay? We've got a man who is happy because he's separated from the world. He's separated from the company of mockers and sinners, and he takes delight in God's knowledge. He takes delight in his teachings. He is like the tree that is being constantly fed water, constantly fed, fed uh, abundantly, and he prospers in life. He prospers in everything he does, not materially, but he prospers in a way that is life-giving. So now we have gotten through the fun, flowery, nice part. Now we transition to the dark and gloomy part, but the reality. So let's read verses four through five real quick. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. So immediately, verse 4, the writer calls the, the wicked, he compares them to chaff. Now, you may have a different word in your translation. I'm not 100% sure, but if you do, this chaff is pictured through the Old Testament as a part of a harvest that is useless. Think of corn, right? If you're shucking corn, it's that, that light layer above the corn that you take and you just throw it away. This is what he's comparing them to. He's comparing the wicked in this way. Listen to what uh, Charles Spurgeon said, the preacher, pre, uh, prince of preachers. He said this, Spurgeon on chaff, intrinsically worthless, dead, unserviceable, without substance, easily carried away. And Jesus spoke about this similar in, in John 15. He said that the branches would be rolled up, the dead branches, they'd be rolled up, bound up, and cast into the fire because there's no substance behind them. There's no eternal substance that is driving this chaff, that's driving it. The, the wicked here are, are working on their own ambitions. They're working on their own desires. They desire the word. There's no place for God, or there's a, a false assurance of God. There's nothing backing them spiritually. There's nothing supporting that life. There's nothing covering them. There's nothing covering them in Christ. So they're like chaff being thrown away, and then we see the result of that. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor the sinners, excuse me, nor the sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Again, we're reminded here of that great day. That day, every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give the account for our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, Paul tells us that. That we'll stand before the judgment of Christ and we'll give an account. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 27, we get an element of that. Verse 21, just, you don't have to turn if you'd like to, if you can, if you want to, but just listen to what I say. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Leave me. You practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and they slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall for it had been found on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who, did, who built his house on the sand. 
And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the wind blew and slammed against that house, and it fell. And what a great collapse it was. You see two sides here. You see one house built on the rock of Christ. You see one house built on the sands of the world. You see the judgment rains come. One house stands in that judgment. One house falls. And there will be those who stand in the judgment and will be pronounced innocent, even though they are guilty for their sin, but they will be justified as innocent because Christ took their punishment. And there will be those who are found guilty for the sins that they're responsible for. There will be those who will find their name in the book of life. There will be those who don't. There will be those who, have, who are seen as righteous because Christ has credited to them that righteousness, not because they've earned it, not because they've done anything to deserve it. The fruit that they bear did not earn that, but Christ earned it on the cross, and they're credited with that righteousness. And there will be those who won't have those credentials, who won't be given that covering. And there will be those who have the covering of Christ, who, who we just preached about in Colossians, who are covered in Christ, whose lives are clothed in Christ. And there are those who will not. They'll be bare before God, no covering, no covering of Christ. So we need to understand the gospel is not just for the lost, it's for the saved, it's for everyone. Everyone needs the gospel Everyone needs to know that if there's no Christ, there's no chance. If there's no Jesus covering the life of the sinner on judgment day, then there is no entrance into heaven. We need to know who Jesus is, believer or non-believer. If you're a believer of Christ, let that flow of him continue to flow to you like the tree that the psalmist painted. Let him be what you build on. Build on that rock. Don't build on your money. Don't build on your success. Don't build on your athletic achievements. Don't build on your success. Build on the rock of Christ. All those things are the blessings that flow. We have to know that if there's no Christ, there's no chance. So just take a moment here. Look at the two paths. Verses one through three, one path of the righteous. Uh, four through five, path of the wicked. What path are you walking? Challenging myself on that. What path are you walking down? Is there a foot in one or the other? Is there a struggle? Don't take a struggle. If you're going through a struggle, don't take that as you on the wicked path. Ask yourself, is God doing a work in that struggle? Is he convicting of your, of your sin? Is he trying to pull you from that sin? If you're, lean, if you're leaning on Christ for that, you're on that path. Examine your heart. If you're not on that path, what's causing you to go down the wicked path? Verse six, for the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but for the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Well, there's good news today that the Lord is available to all. The Lord is available to all who will repent and believe. Listen to Matthew 11. An encouraging statement for anybody here who is struggling in wickedness. Anyone here who has fallen off that path, anyone here today or if you know someone who is struggling with an issue or dealing with something or a marriage is broken or something in your life has been taken, 
Here's a good reminder for you today, and I hope you dwell on it and meditate on it. Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me all, excuse me, come to me all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know, I, I shared with you that book, Pilgrim's Progress, earlier. What do you have? A book in his hand and a burden on his back. The book here convicted him of his sin, and he found that burden on his back. Christ will take the burden. He'll take the burden of sin off your back if they'll come and you'll repent and you'll believe in him and you have the joy of an eternal satisfaction of him forever and ever that is promised to you that will never be changed and nothing can take it from you. If you've got that burden off your back but you are feeling a sense of, of struggle in areas, the psalmist tells you something that you need to realize, that you have a constant flow coming to you. There's a stream flowing through the Holy Spirit that convicts you of your sin, that brings you to him, that helps you bear the fruit of the Spirit. Trust in that stream that he provides. Trust in what he's given. God's given his word to us so that we would know him, so that we would know how we ought to live, and we would know how we can be saved from the judgment that we've inflicted. So I hope that you take this psalm today, that you would not only use it as a way to examine how you are in your walk, but just a reminder, a reminder who Christ is, that he's a constant provider, that you can take delight in his word, and that you find joy in him and not the world. The world will supplement, the world will give you things of enjoyment, but when God is the rock, you find your joy in him, and you'll stand on judgment day and he'll say, well done, faithful servant. Let's pray. God in heaven, we thank you for your revelation. I thank you for being Lord over all. We thank you for being Lord of the church. Your son Jesus said that the gates of Hades will never prevail over the church. That's a blessing from you. That's a promise from you. That's a decree that is eternal, that has been written in stone, that will never change. There's nothing in this world that's outside of you. There's no pain outside of you. There's no pain that you can't take on. There's nothing that you have not done. Lord, we are thankful for you. Lord, you've given us a way to stand on judgment. You've given us a way to be forgiven for our sins, not a sin that won't be forgiven. And you made that available through Christ. Your word says that if you call upon the name and confess with your mouth, that we will be saved. If we repent and turn, we'll be saved. Lord, I pray that we would continue to build our lives on that truth that we would live on that truth of the gospel, that we would build and find our enjoyment in you and you alone, that we would find our enjoyment by separating ourselves from the worldly things, that we don't build on those things, that we 
joy things that you've given us, but we build on your rock. I pray that your instruction, that your word is a delight to us, that we read it and that we find joy and happiness in it, that we would know how we ought to live from it. And I pray that the stream of waters would continue to just flow to us. Give us the strength. Jesus, you're the vine. Help us to bear fruit that you've called us to bear. Help us to be bold in what we say and carry out the great commission in our lives. Lord, I pray for those who are on the wicked path. I pray for those who are not seeing this truth. I pray that your spirit would enter their heart, convict them of their sin, and show them who you are. And that you can take that, remove that burden. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here today with that burden, that they would look to you, Jesus, and have it lifted. I pray that everyone is edified by your word today and that we would walk out of this service worshiping you. In your name I pray. Amen. Hey, let's give it up for Joe. Awesome job. Awesome word. Um, so we're going to be traveling through uh, several psalms this summer. And I want to encourage you, as earlier we were encouraging you to let this be a summer of just spiritual growth. One of the ways you could do that is you can use the psalms in your personal quiet time with the Lord and in your prayer time. So I want to encourage you this week to use Psalm chapter 1, in your prayer time. So if you look at, at Psalm chapter 1, just verse 1, uh, blessed is the one who does not walk in step of the wicked. You can say, Lord, help me to not walk uh, with wicked people in my life. Help me not to follow them in my life. Or stand in the way that sinners uh, take, or sit in the company of mockers. Lord, now show me who, who have I surrounded myself with that I need to move away from or I need to make sure that I'm not uh, being influenced by. Whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Lord, do, do I, am I really reading your word like I should? Lord, let me have a new life about your word. Give me the delight of your word. So you could take a psalm, and you can include that in your time of prayer. Just take one little section at a time, uh, one little verse, even a half verse. So I want to encourage you to uh, utilize the psalms in your quiet time. Hey, uh, we obviously we'll be back here uh, next week as we continue in our uh, summer through the Psalms. And uh, you don't want to miss uh, Father's Day on, on the June 20th and uh, what, what we're going to um, be celebrating dads on that day. But we are so uh, grateful that you were here today and uh, you're blessed. We'll see y'all next week. Bye-bye.